Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week, we'll be featuring the American Scholar's first-ever one-off advice column and talking about the women fighting ISIS and forging a democratic, feminist community in none other than war-torn Syria. But first, let's talk about a community a little bit closer to home. Like, really close to home. Like, in your body. The community of microbes that enable human and animal life to flourish. Also, before we start, a quick note. We'll be taking a little break until the end of September to recover from the heat wave and to plot our next moves for the podcast. So while you wait on tenterhooks for episode 7, you can dig into the autumn issue of The American Scholar, which will be hitting newsstands and, if you've been good, your mailbox in a few weeks. There's plenty there to keep you occupied until we come back. Now, back to those microbes. Ed Young, a staff science writer for The Atlantic, joins us in the studio to chat about his new book, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. Turns out Walt Whitman was being quite literal. There are millions of little microbes running the show inside our bodies, and in the bodies of creatures from the sea to the air and even underground. Thanks for joining us in the studio, Ed. Thanks for having me. Sure. So I thought we could start by talking about the very first microbes that Leeuwenhoek discovered, the animalcules. That's right. Um, So Leeuwenhoek was a, a Dutch draper and civic servant who lived in the late 17th century. He lived in this Dutch town of Delft, and he was a contemporary of people like Vermeer. And he was not a scholar, he wasn't trained in science, but he was very curious about the world around him. And he was, for some reason, really good at making microscopes. Um, He made these little devices, which were just about the size of a credit card, and that he had to hold up to light in order to see. But but they magnified objects 10 times better than anything else around. And when Leeuwenhoek looked at the world around him, at bits of animals and plants, at water from a local lake or a a pot outside his house, he saw these microscopic living things. They were moving, they were pretty to his eyes, and they were extremely numerous. Um, And he, he described them as 
uh, animalcules as little animals. Um, there were no, there was no word for something like that at the time. No one had, um, no one had coined the word bacteria, even though those that was what they were. Leeuwenhoek became the first person in the history of the world to see them with his naked eyes. So, what's an example of a microbe that was later discovered that works in a true symbiotic relationship with an animal? Um, so there's a wonderful one called Vibrio fisheri. It's a type of bacterium that lives in the ocean, and it forms this partnership with an animal called the Hawaiian bobtail squid. And the squid has these light organs that house um, V. fisheri, which produces a glow. And that glow matches the moonlight welling down on top of the squid, so that any predator looking at the animal from below cannot see its silhouette. So the bacteria effectively cloak the squid in an invisibility shield. Now, out of all the thousands of microbes in the water, the squid can form a partnership with just this one bacterium. It somehow manages to yank it out of the water and it alone. The bacterium then journeys through the squid's body, down a tunnel, through these pores, into these crypts. And there it stops and it starts moulding the squid's body. It's like um, like the explorers of science fiction terraforming a planet. Um, it changes the structure and the shape of the organ and it closes the entrance behind it so that no other microbes can enter. And in doing so, it transforms the, the organ into its final mature state. So the squid only really becomes, um, enters its, its final adult form if it has this microbe within it. And that really shows just how important microbes are for shaping and sculpting the organs of their hosts. The bobtail squids are very cute. They're very cute. They're very adorable. They they sort of fit in the palm of your hand, and they they kind of mooch um, on the ground in their tanks. They jet about um, in this very adorable way. They're very sweet animals. So let's talk about another very sweet, cute animal that is very clean, the mm -hmm. germ-free mice. How did they get so clean, and why are they clean? Well, so I... I would object to describing them as clean um, because I think it's it's a problem that we've come to associate microbes with dirt, with microbes as things that we need to remove for the sake of cleanliness. I see them just as parts of the world around us. And actually, mice that lack microbes show how important they are. So scientists have reared them um, because they tell us about what microbes do to the body. What better way of learning that than removing them entirely? So these mice are raised in these sterile plastic bubbles and they're fed sterile water and sterile food. Everything about them is disconnected from the microbial world. So they are among the strangest creatures in the planet because they have no microbiome of their own. They are just these empty vessels. And because of that, they have all kinds of problems. Their bones, their blood vessels, um, their guts, um, all, all of these different parts of their bodies fail to develop properly. Um, if you released them into the wild, they would absolutely die. Um, they only survive because they're kept in these very cosseted environments. And I think they show just how important microbes are. You know, they are critical parts of our lives. They don't kill us. They are, they are, not, uh, they are not synonymous with dirt. They are actually part of us and a really important way of um, building and shaping our bodies. So they're almost like the inverse proof for the hygiene hypothesis. Yeah, that's right. Um, so their immune systems are also very twitchy, not fully formed. Um, they show that microbes help to build and calibrate the immune system to allow it to react to threats, but also to stop it from overreacting 
to imagine threats. Mm. So what about this recent microbe study that you wrote about with um, JB1, mm-hmm. wonderful name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you talk about that study a little bit? Yes. Um, so a group of Irish scientists were looking at how microbes influence the behavior of animals. And they worked with these mice that are naturally very anxious. And they gave it one particular bacterium called Lactobacillus rhamnosus and one special strain called JB1, named after one of their collaborators, John Binnenstock. Um, And that single microbe changed the uh, rodent's behavior. It made them less anxious, more keen to explore, less prone to to give up if stuck in in some water. Um, And it shows that that microbes can influence the behavior of the hosts, even when they're in an organ like the gut, which seems very disconnected from the brain. And in this case, um, the, the link between the gut and the brain seems to involve this nerve called the vagus nerve, which connects those two organs and acts like a sort of telephone line connecting those two very different parts of the body. And by adding this probiotic, this single bacterium to the mice and changing their behavior, the uh, researchers hope to find a little proof of principle that maybe they might be able to influence our own behavior. Maybe they might be able to uh, remediate some of the milder symptoms of things like anxiety or depression by giving people the right strains. And this is still very much in its early stages. It's quite preliminary research, but it shows some promise and it definitely suggests that the microbes in our gut can influence the way our brains work, which is quite astonishing. So eventually we could have a pharmacy full of little microbes and pill bottles. Who knows? I think that's the future that a lot of people are trying to work towards. But I think it will take many years to even come close to to uh, to um, getting there. Mm-hmm. But there is a lot of potential. And I think that's something that a lot of people are working on right now. So another thing for the future of science, and especially poignant now given the Zika virus that's mm-hmm. been spreading, um, is this work with the Volbachia mm-hmm. bacteria, right? Mm-hmm. Back, or is it a virus? Bacteria. Bacteria. Yeah. Perfect. And mosquitoes. Can you talk about what's going on there? Yeah. So Wolbachia was actually discovered in a mosquito back in the 1920s. And um, no one really knew what it was. It took uh, several decades for scientists to realize that actually it's one of the most common bacteria in the world because it's in a large number of insects and other species of arthropods, some sort of like 40% of them. Um, so it's incredibly successful. And what it does varies from host to host. But one of the hosts that it's not naturally found in is the tiger mosquito, Aedes aegypti, um, that causes things that spreads dengue fever, yellow fever, Zika, and several other important diseases. And for the last 25 years, uh, scientists in Australia have been trying to add Wolbachia to these mosquitoes. And they've been trying to do that because in these insects, Wolbachia stops them from transmitting the viruses behind these diseases. So it turns them from carriers into dead ends. And Wolbachia is so good at spreading through natural populations that if you release a small number of these mosquitoes, they ought to be able to seed this bacterium through um, through their wild peers. And that's been done in Australia in some small-scale studies, and it's now being tried in larger cities all around the world, in Vietnam, Indonesia, Brazil, and Colombia. So the idea is these Wolbachia-infected mosquitoes ought to be able to transform the entire wild population of Aedes aegypti into dead ends for Zika and dengue fever and the like. 
And why might that be preferable to the genetic engineering that's been done? So um, this approach uh, has involved no genetic mod modification at all. Neither the mosquito nor the bacterium are changed in any way, um, which might make it more palatable to people. It might make it easier and more acceptable to people. Um, and the approach also doesn't kill the mosquitoes at all. It doesn't harm the mosquitoes. It doesn't alter their numbers. So there's no. it's unlikely to have any ecological consequences downstream. Now, of course, pitting the two approaches against each other, um, I, I feel is like is is not really not really fair to either of them. Um, they are both part of they are both strategies that might help to control these important diseases. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Ed. Thanks for having me. At about this time two years ago, in August, when ISIS laid siege to the city of Kobani in northern Syria, you might have begun seeing photographs of smiling, rifle-toting women in uniform in the desert. These were members of the Rojava Kurds, who were fighting back against ISIS and winning. When 50,000 Yazidis, an ethnic and religious minority in Syria, were stranded at the top of Sinjar Mountain after a genocidal attack by ISIS. It was the Rojava Kurds who swept in and took the Yazidis to safety. And four months later, despite receiving little to no help from outsiders, the Rojava Kurds drove ISIS out of Kobani, and women were on the front lines. The Rojava Kurds, who live in a de facto autonomous region in the north of Syria, boast an all-women's militia, a second co-ed militia, and a bottom-up democratic system in which at least 40% of every organization is women. And one woman and one man hold co-leadership posts on everything. So how did this happen in the center of a Middle East racked by civil war? How did Syria give birth to both a democratic feminist society and a genocidal terrorist organization that sells women into sex slavery? We spoke with Meredith Tax, whose new book, A Road Unforeseen, Women Fight the Islamic State, digs into the history of this singular society. We've also got an excerpt of Meredith's book on our website, accompanied by a slideshow of Joey Lawrence's beautiful photographs of the Rojava Kurds. Welcome to the show, Meredith. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I thought we could start by introducing the Rojava Kurds, and then maybe you could talk about why you wrote a whole book about them. Okay. So I got interested in them first in 2014. I didn't really know about that. I didn't know they existed till 2014, and I saw some things online about the Yazidis and uh, how they had been marooned on a mountain by ISIS, and they were being surrounded and killed and kidnapped, and nobody knew what was going to happen to them, and maybe we should drop food. So I tried to find out what was happening, because I was very aware already of what ISIS did with women. And I'm a feminist, so I was, you know, worried. <laughs> and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they got rescued. And in the American papers, you couldn't even tell who rescued them. And they all got taken away to someplace called Rojava that I had never heard of. And then I started seeing pictures of these young women gorillas in camouflage toting guns all over the place and looking very happy. And I thought, what? <laughs> Who are these people? 
And so I started trying to find out more about them. And it wasn't easy. I had to mostly use online sources and occasionally was able to meet someone who had contact with them personally. But the story just fascinated me because it was a story of a whole revolution that was being led in large part by women, even though it was a left-wing revolution. And I've been on the left in the U.S. most of my life, and I have been active as a feminist during that same period, and I've seen all the difficulties that women have had in revolutionary situations where they thought that the revolution was going to bring them equality, and then it turned out to be the same old, same old, only with different language. And um, this really didn't look like that. This is a revolution in which, well, first of all, there's, they're fighting ISIS, and they're trying to liberate women all over the area. But at the same time, they stood for the same the same ideals that I've fought for all my life. Can you give us a little bit of background on the Kurdish liberation movements in the region? First of all, the Kurds are an ancient people uh, that have been living in the Middle East since Neolithic times and never had their own country. They were divided after the First World War and parceled out between Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. So they have had liberation movements and nationalist movements of various kinds in each of those countries. And they've taken different directions. And uh, mostly Americans only know about the part in Iraq and that part of the story with Saddam Hussein and the terrible chemical attacks on the Kurds and so on. But in fact, Kurds have also been very badly treated in Turkey and in Syria as a result, uh, they also had a liberation movement. And during the 70s, um, they formed a party, the Kurdish Workers' Party, the PKK, which started out, as many radical movements did in those days, with the idea that they would liberate their people through armed struggle and guerrilla warfare. And um, they continued to try to do that and were repressed, and there was a military dictatorship, and they came back. Long story, not great success, but gradually the Turkish response was so overwhelmingly brutal that uh, more and more people started to join the movement. I should say before I go any farther that um, during its more terrorist phase, which really ended in the 90s, um, the PKK was listed as a terrorist organization by Turkey, and that, ad that was adopted by NATO and the U.S., which is one reason here that nobody here knows very much about it because they, they can't come here, they can't talk, they can't get visas, and so on. But in fact, they renounced terrorism in 1995, although they maintain the right of self-defense against military attacks by the Turkish army, which go on frequently. What happened during Arab Spring is uh, there had always been Syrians who were part of the PKK, and... Um, when Arab Spring started and the uprising started in Syria, the Kurds decided not to participate in the rest of the uprising. So the Kurds concentrated their efforts at autonomy in the places where there were a lot of Kurds, which are along the Turkish border. And they formed three cantons, Caesarea, Kobani, and Afrin in 2012. And they were able to do this partly because 
Assad withdrew his army from those areas because he wanted to fight in the south. So basically, the Kurds were able to take over without having to fight. And for this reason, they're accused of being collaborators with the regime by the Syrian opposition forces. But in fact, they just want their own autonomy. So let's talk about how women became involved in the governance of these Kurdish cantons. How did women in a traditional society like this get involved in government? How did they make that happen? It's basically what they do is community organizing, um, as many people have done in the United States. They go and they visit people in their houses and they talk to them and gradually they get the women out into meetings and sometimes into workplace situations so they get an opportunity to earn a little money, which gives them much more prestige and power in their own families. And they have block committees. There are two or three blocks together that are called communes and or collectives. And then they have a larger structure that puts these blocks together in a commune, and they go all the way up to citywide committees. And these all have to be at least 40 percent women. And they have to have representation from every ethnic group and every occupation and every religion. So there's it's a, it's a notion of, of representation that is both numerical in terms of quota, but also these people are elected. And everybody of their autonomous, what they call self-administration, they don't use the word government, every committee, everybody has two chairs, a male and a female. This is not token. They are supported very heavily from the top and also by the people who elect them. And they also have separate parallel structures for women. It's all women, and it decides on things of particular importance to women, domestic violence, forced marriage, any kind of discrimination. And they have the power to overrule the general counsel on matters that um, particularly affect women. They also get tremendous encouragement and prestige from the idea that women are fighting ISIS physically because women are also in the army they have their own army, and they're also in the army that's men and women together. Some of them are commanding officers, including commanding men. And this has been going on among the Kurds now for, like, since 1995, basically. Women have had their own armies. Yeah, it's, it's not the first time that women have been involved in military organizations. We've seen it with the Sandinistas and then even in the Iraqi Kurdish Peshmerga but what makes it different? Like, why have the Rojava Kurds been successful in a way that these others have not? Well, what's mostly happened in previous liberation struggles, and there have been women in many of them, but mostly these were not fighting. I mean, sometimes they were fighting if there was a need, if the situation was so desperate that they had to recruit women, they would do it. But women tended to be restricted to support functions like communications or providing food or doing secretarial work or so on, uh, which is also the case in Israel, um, where women are have been in the army for, for generations but tend not to be on the front lines. And here, first of all, there are separate women's militias that are run by women, which has not been true in most of these other situations. And they do the same things that the the other units do. They don't have any different functions. And the other thing that's different is the ideology behind it because it's not, well, we're in a war now and we need you, but after the war, then you can go home and do what women usually do. It's the ideology that 
women have to be able to defend themselves because women are under attack all the time. And the woman warrior is an exemplary figure who shows how women can be assertive and give leadership and is an example to women in all walks of life. And it's, even though there are women units among the Iraqi Peshmerga as well, which have a very different social system and much more conservative and patriarchal, first of all, the Iraqi Peshmerga, the women there, they, have, they used to be in frontline functions for a little while, and then after it became even more conservative, they got sent to the back, and they're not on the front lines anymore. Basically, it's a job. They go home at the end of their shift, and then they have to do all the housework and take care of their kids. This is not true of any of the guerrillas in Syria or Turkey because they don't have families. They cut themselves off from their families and lead lives of celibacy, which I know sounds very weird and culty here. But they say that at their stage of society, it's necessary for women to do this, to be able to assert themselves and to prevent any kind of sexual harassment or issues in the army. So it's not a job. It's a vocation. It's, it's your whole life. You don't get paid. It's what you do. You get your food and you get whatever you need, but you don't. it's not a job. So these, these female battalions and the co-ed battalions were pretty instrumental um, in the rescue of the Yazidi from Sinjar Mountain, as you said earlier. Has anything changed on the ground for the Yazidis since then? Well, it depends which Yazidis you're talking about. The Yazidis in Rojava have their own camps and are self-governing and have set up consuls and community organizations like the rest of Rojava and get the same food and the same treatment as everybody else, which is not very good because there's an embargo on Rojava. Turkey, which hates the Kurds, they can't rebuild all the houses that were bombed and the U.S. is giving them military aid, but it isn't giving them humanitarian aid to the degree that they need, and neither is the U.N. because they can't get the stuff through. Turkey will not let it through. It all piles up at the border. So there's really no international support besides military support for either the Rojava or the Yazidis? Not to the degree necessary. I mean, it's starting a little bit, but Turkey has been very powerful in agitating against that. I mean, Turkey has its own war with these same radical Kurds. It sees a new Kurdish autonomous entity on it, its border with Syria as enormously threatening, apart from the fact that they have been extremely oppressive to their own Kurds. I mean, until very recently, Kurds weren't even allowed to speak Kurdish in public. They couldn't have any education in their own language. There were no proper schools. I mean, they had nothing. They were really treated like dirt. So there's all that history. And now there's a civil war going on, which nobody here seems to know about, where the Turkish military is attacking all the Kurdish cities in the southeast and putting them under what they call curfew, which means nobody's allowed to go out of their house for days or weeks or even months, and if they go out and try to get food, they get shot, and their bodies get left in the street, and people can't even get their relatives' bodies, and their houses get bombed. I mean, it's, it's just awful. So why do you think media coverage is so thin about this civil war in southern Turkey or even about the, the Rojava? Because there wasn't much about them before the Battle of Kobani at all, was there? Nothing, really. I, that was when I heard about them. It's partly, you know, there's a war. It's dangerous. In order to get into Rojava, a reporter has to go through Iraqi Kurdistan, and 
they don't like to let people in. But second, the story doesn't fit into the narrative that is very popular in the U.S. media about what's happening in the Middle East, either that it's chaos and there's nothing good happening and it's just poor, unfortunate women who are being oppressed by various Muslim groups who have to be rescued by us, or else it's there's nothing we can do. Let's just leave it alone. We can't help. As if there was no other way to engage besides, you know, having to go and rescue people. <laughs> I'm interested in learning what they're doing. I think they have a lot to teach us about democracy. I'd love to see some of the kinds of block meetings and so on start up here that they have. But we still have a, a Cold War narrative about socialism and radicalism and feminism and everything, that those are all things in the past except for the kind of feminism that is exemplified by ladies in Washington. And uh, this just doesn't fit in. People don't understand it. So you talk a little bit in your book about how you've seen other socialist revolutions that promise to be wonderful that don't really turn out to be that way. So what's different here and, and what are the lessons we can learn well, I mean, all of these revolutions tended to think that first we'll make a revolution, we'll throw out the imperialists or we'll throw out whoever and capitalism, and then we'll deal with women. And so during that period, they didn't do anything to build up women's leadership. They didn't educate people about sexism or problems that come from it. And the same, by the way, is true of racism in many cases. So at the end of the revolution, they seized power, but the, the culture was the same, and culture is very tenacious. So what happened in China is 60-some years after the revolution, the Communist Party has uh, 25 people on its Politburo, which is its ruling body, and two of them are women. Even though they say women hold up half the sky, they certainly don't hold up half the Politburo. What's different in Rojava and also among the Syrian Kurds is that they took on the cultural stuff, from not from the beginning, but from the 90s on, I would say. Yeah, I was struck how it's even integrated into the PKK's Congress in 1995, how they said, women represent the strongest revolutionary dynamic force in society. I know, it's amazing. It was amazing when I read that. I said, this is a Marxist revolution. I can't believe I'm reading this. Where did this come <laughs> from? I was just astonished. And this was like 20 years ago. And so if you put that line into practice for 20 years, you have a generation of women, young women, who grow up hearing that all the time. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about your book, Meredith. Well, thank you. And now for something completely different. If you're not quite ready to tackle bottom-up democratic reforms in your society and are looking for a little help instead with your creative side— We've got some advice for you. Or rather, our agony aunt does. Agony Amy, also known as Amy Whitaker, is the author of Art Thinking, a book about how to carve out creative space in the middle of a busy world and getting from point A to point B when you don't quite know what point B is and you have to invent it. I've enlisted several troubled listeners with quandaries to ask Amy some questions about the life of the artist. So our first tortured soul asks, Dear Agony Amy, I'm a freelance writer, which means that I always spend a lot of time on Twitter. I need to use social media to maintain my journalism contacts and also to shamelessly promote myself. 
but I can't help noticing when my feed fills up with other people's amazing cover stories or photographs of their amazing Cancun vacations, which they somehow took while writing these amazing cover stories. How do I deal with my social media envy and anxiety? Do I just leave? So first of all, the self that most people present on social media is highly enhanced, if not figuratively photoshopped. Those people probably have the bumper of their car held on with duct tape as much as the rest of us. So I take a step back and realize that there's this profound cognitive bias about creative work where you see your own work with the messy inside before picture view and you see other people's work after the fact when they've figured it out and presented it. Get comfortable that you're in the weeds, that you're putting one foot in front of the other. The second piece is that being a freelancer is really hard. It's a huge juggle. There's a side hustle. You're in the same position as artists where you have to invest in your own work before someone else does. You're constantly pitching and doing lead work. And so what I would say there is that hopefully over time, you can separate out the pieces of your work that give you income from the pieces of your work that allow you to do the projects that most excite you. But the more you can isolate the artistic part, the more I think you will ultimately be the envy, if not of people on social media, the real live human beings who sit next to you at dinner parties. That's always my goal. All right. So our next reader writes in and says, Dear Agony Amy, I've always wanted to write a book, but every time I get an idea for one, I do a few months of research and then realize that someone else has already done exactly what I want to do. This has happened a few times already, and I'm becoming discouraged. Am I thinking about this wrong? So my first question to you would be, how did you choose the topics that you're writing the books on? Did you choose them because you think that's what the market will bear? Or did you choose them because they're the things that you absolutely, truly most care about in the world? Most stories have already been told, and we're always looking for ways to reinvigorate them. Almost anything that you come up with, if you have a particular take on it, you can do it in a highly individual way. So what I would say to you is, what is the book that only you can write? And why is it the the book that only you can write? And is not something that you're putting out into the world like an application essay for a prize, but something that you're putting out into the world as a contribution or a gift or a form of conversation with other people. Thanks, Amy. Our next reader has another writing-related question. (laughs) Dear Agony Amy, I'm halfway through writing a novel, but I've hit a roadblock. I no longer know why I'm writing a novel or what the point is to this story I'm telling. I feel like I should just finish it so I can just get it done. But on the other hand, I don't want to waste another year of my life on a project that will just end up in my desk drawer. So should I stay or should I go? There is great honor and dignity in failing if you go all in on something on the way there. Roger Bannister, the first person to run a mile in under four minutes, said that failure is exciting to watch as success as long as the effort is genuine and complete. So first of all, take a step back. You're halfway through a novel. That is not easy to do. And imagine the life of a fellow novelist, Harper Lee. So when she was writing To Kill a Mockingbird, she had no idea that one day she would sell 40 million copies and have to become a recluse and get to meet Gregory Peck. 
she was a college and law school dropout who was living in a small apartment in New York. She had gone from working in a bookstore to being a reservations airline agent. And every time she showed up at a party, people kind of looked at her dismissively when she said she was writing. And she still did it. So I would say, why are you writing the novel you're writing? Um, it's perfectly normal that it changes midstream. That's probably happened to every person who's ever written a novel, except the three people who have done news interviews about how seamlessly they wrote their novel. And ask the, the novel itself as if you're in conversation with the work of art you're making, what it needs, and then allow yourself to almost collaborate with what you've made already to finish it. Great. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me on. That's all for Smarty Pants this week. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And as a reminder, you won't be hearing from us until the end of September. But in the meantime, you can dig into the autumn issue of The American Scholar, featuring none other than Amitav Ghosh, and some questions about democratic society that might resonate with today's interview subject. In the meantime, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.